0: I'm Nina Shea. I direct the Center for Religious Freedom at the Hudson Institute. I'd like to welcome everyone here to the Hudson Institute. Um, It is my great honor to be hosting this event today, co-hosting it, um, with uh, the Vietnam Committee on Human Rights. And I'm very honored to be with its founder and director, Vo Van Iy whom you all know. Um, Vo Van I, and the Vice Chair, Penelope Faulkner, and I um, go back about 30 years when um, I first founded the Center for Religious Freedom here in Washington and started reporting on the terrible situation regarding uh, religious persecution in Vietnam. Um, And on... Uh, about 10 years ago, I was a commissioner on the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom and had a meeting with a high-level Vietnamese government official. And when we sat down to talk about our issues, uh, he said to me, You know, you're American, and we understand that religious freedom is really important to you. And that's why we agreed to meet with the commission. Unfortunately, I'm not sure Vietnam uh, could say the same thing today based on the fact that President Obama went to Vietnam in May and uh, pledged to lift the lethal arms embargo for the first time since the Vietnam War without gaining any concessions of significance on religious freedom. Um, will be represented today. We have um, several speakers, two speakers. Um, In fact, all our speakers uh, who are um, from the United States uh, have some connection, have been either commissioners, um, like myself, or um, worked on USERF. So we're um, eager to have a a really substantive discussion on the religious freedom problems. This is an extremely timely event um, in the sense that not only is the um, relationship with the United States uh, becoming closer, but with fewer demands on religious freedom. But um, within the next month, we expect to see a new religious uh, law in Vietnam. And that is important to debate now as well. USURF has, um, uh, I wanted to say that, um, that USURF also has a special connection here. Because um, Father Lee um, Wynn Van Wyn was arrested after giving testimony to USURF. And uh, he has spent decades in prison. Um, what he said to USURF was that lay people and religious leaders were being persecuted for organizing choirs, for um, running catechism classes, and for taking other initiatives um, regarding their faith. So um, without uh, further ado, I would like to um, just again stress how important the importance I place in many others in Washington, even if they're not in the White House, um, at this time place on religious freedom and religious persecution in Vietnam. Um, I would like to introduce for our viewers I know you all know Volva and I um, but this is being this event today uh, is going to be live streamed on the internet And so um, we have um, some press in the room. So for the outside audience, I'd like to introduce Vo Van Ay and call him to the front, um, because he will be giving our opening remarks today. Uh, Vo Van Ay is an unparalleled human rights defender, um, a writer and poet. He has written over 20 books on poetry and philosophy. He um, was first arrested at age 11 years old uh, as part of the resistance movement for independence of Vietnam. And um, since um, 1964, so he's been involved in, in pro-democracy issues, pro-freedom uh, issues his entire life. Um, in 1964, he worked actively, has worked actively in the nonviolent Buddhist movement for democracy and peace. Um, in um, 1975, He started uh, documenting the human rights abuses of the communist regime and drew up the first comprehensive, um, at that time, religious uh, uh, re-education, or uh, sorry, the first comprehensive re-education camps, uh, started mapping them and found that there were um, about 800,000 prisoners at that time. Um, in fact, there was even more. There were about two million eventually released, but no, the world had no idea that it was even as, as high as eight hundred thousand. He was the first to start documenting that. Um, he also, in, in '78, um, first uh, helped launch the first rescue ship for the Vietnam boat people um, who were fleeing at that time for freedom in the South China Seas. He testified before the UN, the U.S. Congress, U, and EU Parliament. And, of course, he is the founder of the Vietnam Human Rights Committee. So please join me in welcoming him to the podium.
1: Thank you, Nina Jai, to present to me to the audience, distinguished West, dear friends, and for my compatriot, may I say, I am very happy to welcome you to this extraordinary conference today. For me, it really is an extraordinary event, firstly, because it is held in this wonderful building, thanks to the co-sponsorship of the Hutchins Institute, Center for Religious Freedom, and its director, Nina Shea. Secondly, because we have a two extraordinary panels. We have a top-level diplomat and scholar such as Elliot Abram, Commissioner Christina Ariaga, and Nina Shea. And we have an expert and direct victim of persecution from project committees in Vietnam. And you, our participants, are also extraordinary for many of you have traveled very far from Canada California, Texas, even Hawaii, to be here today. Many have come at your own cost, and in many cases, I know, with great sacrifice. I'm very moved by this gesture of solidarity, and I thank you once and all. The presence of two of our speakers has a deep personal meaning for me. For our past have crossed often in the combat for democracy, religious freedom, and human rights. They are Mr. Elliot Abrams and Ms. Nina Shea. In 1985, Elliot Abrams was the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Human Rights. It was the 10th anniversary of the fall of Saigon, while the communist government was staging huge celebration in Vietnam. I decided to celebrate it by my own way, by filing a complaint at the United Nations against Vietnam for gross violation of human rights. The complaint was a 500 page indictment of the regime repression, with the very first map of re-education camp in which over two billion people were detained. Edward Abrams supported our complaint and helped us break the silence on Vietnam. At the time when the American media was not ready to admit That the Vietnam War was not over. Indeed, 10 years after the withdrawal of US troops, Hanoi communists were still at war against the people of Vietnam. Nina Shae was the head of the Pupla Institute here in Washington when when we first met. In the early 80s, when it was politically incorrect to criticize communist state such as China and Vietnam. Nina was among the very first to document and denounce systematic religious persecution in these two countries. Nina is a Roman Catholic, but her work has always been ecumenical, and she campaigned tirelessly to defend the right to religious freedom for all. I am a Buddhist. And I was very moved to read her description of Buddhism in Vietnam as I quote a face that decades and even century of repression of repressive policy have not been able to crush. Both Elliot and Nina played a vital role in making religious freedom a component of U.S. foreign policy. With the adoption of the International Religious Freedom Act in 1998, inspired by this landmark law, the European Union has adopted guidelines for the protection and the promotion of religious freedom and recently appointed a special envoy for freedom of religion and belief outside the EU. Yet while the democracy are crafting policy to advance religious freedom, Vietnam is using the law to prevent rather than protect this right. Very soon Vietnam will adopt a new law on religion and belief, which will legalize state interference into religious affairs and a draconian system of registration and control. Organizations such as Unified Buddhist Church of Vietnam, Montagnan Christian, or Macron Buddhists, who cannot or choose not to register with the state will be virtually outlawed. This contradicts the very principle of religious freedom. For the Heinle the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom on Religion or Belief said, registration should be an offer by the state, but not a compulsory legal requirement. Religious freedom, both as a human right, and a vector of regional and global security is the theme of our conference today. I believe, and I will conclude my remark with this belief that has inspired me for the past 40 years, that the right to religious freedom is widely misunderstood, that the right Religious freedom is widely misunderstood. It is wrongly perceived as a right that concerns only those who believe in God. In fact, the United Nations definition is much wider, and it concerns us all. Freedom of thought, conscience, religion, and belief is truly the mother of all freedoms. For it is the very core of one's identity. It shapes by every aspect of our, your thinking and acting, who you are, how you behave, behave within society. Here today, we will explore the way to promote and protect this right, to develop a civic culture of tolerance and compassion and lay the foundation of a lasting peace in this region and in the world. On this ambition note, I thank you all again and hand the floor to Nina Shea, who will moderate the first panel today. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. And thank you all for coming. Many of you have come very far, long distances from across the country. And of course, of of and Penelope have come from Paris to be here today. Uh, So it's my honor now to introduce our two uh, main speakers, both distinguished champions throughout their entire adult careers of human rights, religious freedom, and democracy. I'm going to introduce them together um, because I will then uh, hand over the podium to them to, to make their presentations. It will then be followed by a Q&A. Uh, we'll have some comments from a U.S.E.R.F. Uh, a researcher expert who has just been in Vietnam and then we'll uh, launch into a, a question-and-answer session um, in which um, there'll be a microphone um, Passed around, and I ask you to wait to to speak in the microphone and identify yourselves. Um, so our first speaker is Elliot Abrams, and I first came to know Elliot as uh, when he was Assistant Secretary for Human Rights in the U.S. State Department in the Reagan administration. He then went on to be National Security uh, Advisor, Deputy Advisor. Um, on global democracy strategy for George W. Bush. And I got to know him better working um, with him as a fellow commissioner on the US Commission on International Religious Freedom. He is now um, a fellow in the Council on Foreign Relations and um, teaches foreign policy at Georgetown University. And so um, he will speak first. And then he will be followed by Christina Arriaga, um, and uh, Christina Arriaga joined the Beckett Fund uh, for Religious Liberty back in 1995. And that's when I first met her. And she um, is now the executive director of the fund, which focuses on um, protecting and defending religious freedom in the courts in the United States. Um, she is also um, has been an advisor to the US delegation Uh, to the U.N. Human Rights Commission, and she was appointed to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. And um, in this year, she was appointed by House Speaker Paul Ryan as a commissioner on USERF. So um, welcome to Elliot and Christine. And um, Elliot, would you like to come to the podium and start it off?
2: Sure. Thank you. Thank you uh, all <clears throat> for being here. Thank you, Nina. It's a pleasure <clears throat> to be here and a great pleasure to see my old friend, Vo Van I, whom I first met uh, more than 30 years ago. I think we should start by asking why is religious freedom important in Vietnam or anywhere else? Uh, the usual answer and uh, Wolf and I mentioned this, the usual answer is that freedom of conscience or religion, freedom of thought, is the foundation for all other freedoms. Freedom of speech or assembly, for example, or political freedom more generally. I think that's true. But there is another answer I would offer. What the question of religious freedom illuminates for us is the way in which any government sees itself and the people of the country. A regime that does not permit freedom of thought and belief and worship is one that sees the inhabitants of the country not as citizens, but as suppliers of labor to use the old term as uh, the proletariat. It sees them as cogs in the machinery, as automatons whose job is to work, to rally when assembled, and to shout praises of the regime when required. Thought, free thought, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion would get in the way of all that. In communist systems, Individuals have no rights. Only the party has rights. Recall the words of Trotsky to the 13th Party Congress in 1924, In this is in, of course, Russia. The party, in the last analysis, is always right, because the party is the single historic instrument given to the proletariat for the solution of its fundamental problems. I know that one must not be right against the party. One can be right only with the party and through the party. So, of course, only the party is permitted to think. To hold beliefs outside those of the party, to believe that there is a cause or a value or a being above the party is a crime. President Bush, George W. Bush, used to try to explain to Hu Jintao, Hu Jintao the, Jintao the head of the Chinese Communist Party then, that the Chinese Communist Party's fear of religion was wrong because it was impractical and damaging to the nation. He argued to Hu Jintao <clears throat> that any great country has uh, many social problems and that religious groups address these in more successful and less expensive ways than did the government. He pointed to the tens of thousands of hospitals, schools, orphanages, old folks' homes, all the other services provided by religious groups in the United States. Your society will be safer and richer if you allow religious groups to act freely, (coughs) Bush argued. And they will not engage in political activity. They will not form a political party and seek power. Of course, that was true. Chinese society would be richer. But in a way, Hu was right in thinking that this was dangerous to him. Even knowing that religious groups would act, would never act politically or seek power. Why? Because religious groups see the individual, and his or her freedom, and happiness, and the community, and its free and harmonious functioning as the main goals of social activity. So the state exists to serve the people, individually and collectively, and to preserve their right to guide themselves and their families. Thank you. <clears throat> in accordance with their views of the person, or of God, or of life itself. What a terrifying <clears throat> thought that is for a uh, communist leader, who would, of course, see such thinking as a challenge to the party's right to supply correct views of history, of the self, and of the community. Here is a microcosm of what they fear, from a report On a trip to Vietnam by Professor Marianne Glendon of Harvard and Father Thomas Reese, who were members of the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom when they made this trip, here's what they said. Government officials become nervous when a local pastor has more credibility and authority in his village than the local party and government officials. For example, when the local officials tell demonstrating villagers to go home, uh, they ignore them. But if pastors say, go home, they obey. Now, why is that? That is because the local pastor has moral authority and legitimacy, while the party and government officials do not. That is just what the regime fears. That is why the new law on belief and religion that Volvan and I mentioned is really about controlling and circumscribing belief and religion. That is why the Committee on Religious Affairs sits within the Ministry of the Interior. But what party officials do not realize is that they lack moral authority and legitimacy precisely because they prevent citizens from having freedom of religion and belief. The story of religious freedom in Vietnam reflects all of this. And, of course, its Communist Party leaders cling to the Leninist view of the party's political role, even as they abandon Marxist theories of economics. When it comes to religion, they suppress independent institutions and try to create fake state-owned substitutes. I'm delighted to be here today because this is precisely the moment to discuss these issues, both because we will soon have a new administration in Washington and because the Vietnamese government is seeking allies today as it tries to resist threats to its independence from China. President Obama, as Nina mentioned, lifted the arms embargo on Vietnam when he visited there in May. The question is whether the United States will use the closer relationship that Vietnamese leaders want to promote religious freedom, or will we forget about it and pursue what is meant to be a policy of railpolitik? Professor Glendon and Father Reese noted that some progress on religious freedom has been made since the communist takeover in 1975. And this gave them hope that improvements are possible. They also stated, quote, it is also clear that Vietnamese officials want to have good relations with the United States. And they explained that what happens in Vietnam will have a real impact on freedom of religion throughout Southeast Asia. The trouble with allegedly realpolitik policies is that they are very often not terribly realistic. Whose independence and strength are we enhancing? That of the Vietnamese people or of the party and the regime? Will we be demanding that Vietnam meet the standards to which it is officially pledged as a signer of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights? Or will we ignore those requirements? In fact, we know American pressure can work to relax the degree of oppression, to reduce the amount of uh, thuggish behavior, to allow some more space for religious groups. It can work, but only if the United States government applies that pressure and makes it clear that improved relations depend on this. The Vietnamese, Vietnamese regime will study this closely. It will reach conclusions about how much we care. We should care for reasons of principle, because we believe in freedom of conscience and thought and religion. But we should also care if we wish to see Vietnam develop into a stable society that will be a long-term American ally. We should be urging the regime to stop fearing its own people, to stop acting as if their civic activity is always a threat. We should be urging the Vietnamese regime that it can develop a more harmonious society if it will allow the people more freedom of religion. And we should be arguing that the only way for it to acquire the moral authority and legitimacy it seeks is to allow the people of Vietnam more freedom. Of course, they will resist because they will want it all. They want American weapons and investment and protection from China without reducing their control of society, without changing their belief that only the party is permitted to think, without trusting the Vietnamese people, without allowing freedom of religion. So the outcome depends in good part on us, on the United States. If we abandon the Vietnamese people, the party will not give an inch if we press them, if we stick to our principles and make reasonable demands, we know from the last 40 years that they will move. As little as they can, of course, but they will move. The independent variable here is not the Vietnamese regime, whose attitude we can predict. The independent variable is the United States. Will we have the strength of character and belief to struggle for religious freedom in Vietnam? By acting together as we are today, we can make the answer to that question yes. That must be our goal this year and in the coming years under a new administration. Thank you. you.
3: Am I the tallest person at the the podium? Does anyone mind if I take up my shoes? <laughs> uh, don't tell anyone. There you go. That way I can see. Oh, thank you. There um, we go. Elliot Abrams stole my speech, so I will have to make another one right now. He said everything I was going to say. Uh, I'm only kidding. Um, I'm very humbled to be here with you today, not only because Nina Shea and Elliot Abrams have been your champions for many, many years, but also because I'm humbled that you are here. Many people around the world think that things start in Washington DC, but they don't. They start with each one of you. I, Perhaps you hear my accent.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Many of you have accents. I think accents are sexy, so I'm glad we're in good company. Uh, I am Cuban. My father escaped Fidel Castro's Cuba and married a German woman who had been in concentration camps in Germany. So we have grown up with freedom in our veins, uh, in our household. Whenever I came home and I complained that homework was too hard, big mistake to complain to my father, he would say, we live in the greatest and freest country in the world. Now, work hard, and everything can be possible. In this country, because of conscience freedom, because of freedom of religion, no one can touch what's in our hearts or in our minds. No one. And each one of you believes that. That's why you're here today instead of enjoying a wonderful fall day touring Washington, D.C., so I thank you. The future of Vietnam thanks you for each one of your sacrifices, everything you have done for Vietnam. Please know, even on dark days, remember that it is up to you, not to the American government, and not to the government of Vietnam, but it's up to your courage to change things in Vietnam. I also want to say we do have moral authority. In fact, we sort of have an unfair advantage over the government of Vietnam. And that is, in spite of all their weapons and all of their repression, we are right. Religious freedom comes when we're born in each one of us. Religious freedom is tied to our human dignity, which no one can take away, even if we're incarcerated, even if we're tortured. The government is unable to touch what's inside each one of us. Now it's time to put pressure on Vietnam, and we are at a unique moment of inflection, because we are changing administrations. And we can put pressure on the administration of this country. We can put pressure on the United States Department of State. And they, in turn, have to put pressure on the government of Vietnam and tell them that if Vietnam wants to be fully integrated into the world community, they have to treat religious freedom not as a gift of the state for those who behave well in the park not as a gift that they own. Our rights do not come from the government. Therefore, the government cannot take them away. As Nina Shea mentioned, I wear two hats. I am the Executive Director of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, fighting for religious freedom here in this country. And I was recently appointed To the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom. Sorry. (coughs) Vietnam has made some improvements, as you well know. Sorry, (coughs) must be something emanating from the podium. (coughs) Sorry. Vietnam has made some small improvements. However, as everyone has mentioned, there are these draconian laws that are coming our way. Now, when was the last time Vietnam made some real improvements? That was 2004, when the Department of State named it a country of particular concern. International pressure works and United States pressure works. That should give each one of us great hope that the Vietnamese government wants not to be embarrassed before the international community. Another thing that the Vietnamese government doesn't want people to do is to name names. That's uncomfortable. So I'm gonna name a few. Individuals that belong to the Cao Dai as was mentioned earlier, the Montagnards, and the followers of Duan Van Minh, and forgive my bad Vietnamese, are oral being persecuted, and authorities across Vietnam continue to issue threats to demolish the religious properties for the United Buddhist Church of Vietnam, for Catholics, from the Khmer Krom Buddhists, and for the Cao Dai. We need to continue to remind the world that Vietnam is not treating these religious groups fairly. And we need to remind the world about the ridiculous and mandatory requirements for registration that Vietnam, who seeks to be a modern country, wants to impose. We also need to remind the world about the Vietnamese prisoners of conscience. I'm sure you know their names well. Do, the patriarch of the Unified Buddhist Church of Vietnam, who has been, as you well know, under arrest since 2003. Wing Kong Chin, who was sentenced to 11 years in prison for undermining unity, and his wife, Tron Hong, who was detained and questioned several times just because he, she met with Ambassador David Saperstein, our U.S. Ambassador for Religious Liberty. We also have to tell the world that the venerable... Thak I practice all these names, I promise. I'm sorry mm-hmm. if I'm massacring them. A Cameroon Buddhist was sentenced to six years for attempting to leave the country. Christian human rights lawyer Nguyen Van activist Bu Ti Min Hang, and Catholic blogger Nguyen Hu Win, and countless Hao Buddhists, Cao Dai, and Montagnards, and others. We must name names. We must shine the light of truth on these names. Do not forget them. Recently, USERF participated in a conference in Asia. There were some Vietnamese human rights activists that wanted to attend. They were prevented from leaving the country. Not only that, they were questioned. Detained or arrested in connection for only wanting to attend the conference. In spite of those small positive developments, the stark reality is that, from the standpoint of international religious freedom standards, which, as Mr. Abrams mentioned, Vietnam has signed on to, respect, and protect, Vietnam is not living up to its commitment. This conference deals with what we can do in the future. For starters, we need to ask the Department of State to name Vietnam a country of particular concern, CPC. And the US government needs to name those names when they are in country. It's inexcusable, inexcusable that any government official should travel to China, and if I may put in a plug, to my native Cuba and fail to name names. We should hold those people responsible for not naming names. Vietnam wants to be part of the world, and I'm sure it does. It needs to not treat religious liberty as the poor sister of the human rights family, or worse, as the eccentric uncle of the human rights family. Without religious freedom, no other right exists. Thank you very much. Look. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Thank you very much, Christina and Elliot. Um, We're going to have a a few uh, questions and answers, and then when we finish that session, we're going to have um, Tina Mufford come up and make a few concluding remarks, and then before we move on to our next panel, I think we're just going to sit here um, while we have our exchange. Um, I'm going to start with the First question to both of you. Um, both of you um, acknowledge the fact that democracy here in this country is so important to um, bolstering religious freedom uh, abroad because of our values um, and because it's it's uh, basically good for the world and good for business and good for everything. It's a stable, it produces stable countries. But what can um, the audience, um, which we we were so delighted, as Christine said, to 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 see you here from all various states throughout this country, Vietnamese Americans. You are more numerous. I think Vov and I told told us there was several million of you here in the United States. What is the figure, Vov and I, Mr. Vov? Yeah. Yeah, two million Vietnamese Americans now. Um, there were. Uh, I was talking to the Polish government recently, and they told me that there's. they think there's in the diaspora in the United States maybe one million Poles. And I, I was really surprised. I thought it was much greater than that because their impact was so significant during the Cold War and, and um, helping give support to the trade union solidarity and to other actors within the dissidents and, and uh, those who are calling for a peaceful transition to uh, democracy in Poland during the Cold War. Um, So you have a tremendous potential. And I'd like to ask both of you your views on what they can do. What would be helpful at this point?
2: I think the American political system is actually uh, a fairly open system, open to influence from citizens. It's in the Constitution, the right to petition the government. Um, I teach at Georgetown, as Nina mentioned. And uh, one day, I had a congressman come visit the class. And one of the students asked about lobbying and asked it in a very negative term. Why do we permit so much lobbying? And the congressman replied, The Constitution gives citizens the right to petition their government. That means to go into senators and congressmen and congresswomen and say, here's what we want. So getting organized is really critically important. Um, It's not so much the size of the community, although 2 million is a big community, it's the organization, and it's the energy. You know, uh, many members of Congress, I think, would be uh, open to being um, taught about what's going on in Vietnam and open to being responsive to the need for religious freedom in Vietnam. Many of them are religious themselves and believers in religious freedom. So I think for the Vietnamese American community, the answer is... Uh, getting organized, and feeling completely free to press your demands on Congress.
3: Uh, That's excellent advice. I would also strongly uh, suggest that you engage the members of the press in your community. Uh, Reporters are often stretched thin because media has changed, and that is to your advantage. There is a lot you can do with digital media, and that is through the social media platforms such as Facebook, uh, Instagram, and Twitter. And the reason I mention those things is that you have this tremendous opportunity to engage millennials, Americans between 18 and 35 years of age, who are thirsty to help other people out. I mean, you were in prison at 11. Uh, my 14-year-old this morning could not find his charger for his iPhone. I'm embarrassed to tell you that. Uh, and as a result, I think there is a great opportunity to give more meaning to the life of young Americans who want to fight for someone else and don't have the opportunity to do so. I have great faith in the American people. I think once you tell them about the suffering of others, they're very happy to engage. There's great respect for the Vietnamese community here. And you can start very small. You can start in your school systems. And let me remind you of something. Our current president, only a few years ago, was sitting in a room in Illinois unknown. He was a state representative and became a senator, in Sarah Palin, who you probably all heard about, who was running for vice president, was the mayor of a teeny tiny town that no one had heard about before. Go to your local elected officials, introduce yourself, go have coffee with them, and make it your mission to keep other people informed, name names.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I think that's so important, and uh, you have to make your own voices heard, and and maybe later this afternoon you can strategize um, with Pho and Penelope about that further. Um, There's also email to to your members of Congress. You don't have to actually go there. Um, You have, um, I know, a large presence of Vietnamese American community in Northern Virginia here in Texas and California and Louisiana, that's really important. And this is a particularly pivotal time during an election where you can get to the candidates and put them on the spot about where they stand on freedom of religion in Vietnam as well. So um, are there any questions from the floor? Yes, sir. Uh, please identify yourself and, and use the microphone.
4: I'm uh, Michael Binge, and I'm with the Montenegro Human Rights Organization. And uh, perhaps I would address this to Mr. Abram, but if uh, <laughs> anyone uh, can offer an answer. A few years ago, we submitted to the Department of State and that was a list of over 4,000 Molten Yards in prison for religious. Uh, persecution I'm sorry mm-hmm. and whenever the State Department comes up with a list of prisoners of, and this was from only one tribe alone it's the second largest tribe in Vietnam over 4,000 people in prison for uh, practicing house church religion and this list was uh, submitted to the Department of State and whenever they come up with any of their lists of prisoners of conscience, they come up with 400, 500 people as prisoners of conscience. But these is over 4,000 people from one smaller group uh, were, are prisoners of conscience. And they don't consider them prisoners of conscience. And unfortunately, the many of the human rights NGOs do little more than parrot hmm. the Department of State uh, list that there's only 400 prisoners of conscience. This is only one religion, and I'm very sure that others in the audience could come up with lists of hundreds of others.
0: You have those posted on your website? Do you uh,
4: I don't know whether it is now or not, but okay. I can... Well, you
0: should get that list to USURF as well. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Well, I don't know this particular case. I mean, sometimes it's because they say they lack adequate information about each individual case. Um, Sometimes it's a desire to um, avoid additional uh, tension with the country in question, with the government in question. Um, But I, I can't answer the question on the Montagnard case, sorry.
0: Any other questions
5: from the audience? Hi, I love your speech, both of you. you. My name is Mauling. I'm with Vietnamese Public Radio from Oklahoma. We have the audience throughout the United States through about 40 states of United States and also 56 countries in global. Uh, so we established our media and connected with the Vietnamese uh, throughout the world. As you mentioned, the Vietnamese population in the United States, most, uh, roughly about two millions. But two millions scattered through the United States. So when you come to your local uh, representative in your state level, you are nothing. Really, you are nothing. In Oklahoma, we have roughly about 20,000 Vietnamese in Oklahoma City. And, you know, 20,000 compared with 3 million is nothing. So we are, and I I'm strongly believe in everything you said, uh, freedom of religions is the, the air that you breathe. Without the freedom of relations, we are suffocate and we are not living at all. And you recognize it. We recognize it. The United States of America recognize it. But when you talk about politics, it's completely a different animal. Okay. you telling me, 2004... That when you see a change in Vietnam, because we put pressure on them, because we put them on CPC, and you sitting up there, you tell me why for the last eight years we are not able to put Vietnam back on CPC. Tell me.
2: Um, I did.
3: Please. No. Uh, I love your passion, and with that same passion, you should go meet with Senator Langford in Oklahoma. He is a passionate defender of religious freedom. Uh, I met with him uh, a few months ago. Uh, he is not only a passionate defender of religious freedom, uh, he's, he has made it a priority. Um, not only that, there are several state-level initiatives in your state. There is a ballot in the um, in your um, in, in in November uh, having to do with religious liberty. Religious liberty is a hot topic in Oklahoma City, and people are very happy to hear about it. So never feel you're nothing. Never, ever, ever. You are of great importance as an individual, whether you're three Vietnamese or four thousand Vietnamese.
5: Well, thank you. Matter of fact, I could
0: add is building coalitions with other groups is so mm-hmm. important. And this can be done. It's something that I do in my work all the time. So we're trying to work with different religions. I, you know, As and I said, I'm Catholic, but um, I'm, I do this because I believe in religious freedom. Um, I don't have any personal experience with uh, persecution thank God, but um, I work with the Buddhists, I work with Jewish groups, I work with um, all sorts of Middle Eastern groups. Um, right now, I uh, do a lot of work on, on ISIS threat to Iraq and Syria. So by building, I, I work with the Southern Baptists, I mean, by building coalitions, you can make a difference because there's enough shared interest in this great Principle, this great American principle of religious freedom, an international principle. Now,
5: thanks. Uh, actually, I'm a personal friend of Langford. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I campaigned for him, um, but on the other hand, I also feel that he's only one of the 50.
3: But he's very yeah. tall and has a deep. <laughs>
5: And he got a beautiful voice too. Uh, but, but anyway, uh, I'm Mr. Asking, Abrams, I'm
3: sure, yeah, will
2: say yeah. I, I think, look, m- many races, many races for Congress, for the House of Representatives or for the Senate are difficult. They're close. No one throws away a community of 20,000. 20,000 people can be, I don't know, 10,000 votes, 15,000 votes. That's significant in a close race. And the image of being concerned about religious freedom can be valuable to a member who's running. And as Nina says, it's also great if when you walk in, you are walking in not only with Vietnamese, but with representatives of two or three other groups, or with your local, let us say, um, Catholic bishop. You will get a hearing. Now, there is another question here. Let's be practical. And that question is, what's on the other side? For example, if your concern is um, uh, building a dam on a river, and you you are against it, but on the other side is some group 10 big companies that want the dam built, it's a fight. Who is so anxious to defend the communist government and the communist regime in Vietnam? Yes, there are some companies that want to do business with Vietnam that will probably lobby in Congress for opening, opening, opening without any standards whatsoever. But of course, you have a much better case. Freedom, human rights, freedom of religion. And no one running for office in this country wants to hear during his campaign or her campaign people saying... She doesn't care about human rights. She's selling us out. So I think it's a mistake to say that, because there are only 2 million Vietnamese and you are scattered around the country, it's impossible to have political influence.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask Tina Mufford to come up and make a few remarks. And we're going to, later this afternoon, um, after the panels, however, get into more of the nuts and bolts discussion about how, what the concerns are, what the priorities are, and how to make a difference. Um, So, uh, Tina, could you join us, please? Tina is uh, the expert um, on Vietnam with the the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. Uh, That is an independent government agency. It advises the... um, State Department and Congress president about religious freedom issues around the world in US foreign policy. Um, it also um, uh, it recommends CPC uh, designation to the State Department and has recommended um, Vietnam since, I think, 2001. Um, but uh, Tina, welcome. Um, Adam, where should Tina um, um, speak from? Should she speak from the podium? Sure. Uh, this session today is being live-streamed on our Internet site at www.hudson.org, and it will be up for some time so you can see the events section of Hudson, and you will have this whole thing recorded. Tina. Thank you so much, Nina. Can everyone hear me? Okay. Yes.
6: Yes. Okay. It's really wonderful to be here, and it's great to see so many familiar faces. I've met with a number of you over the years. Um, so many of you come into town for Vietnam Advocacy Day every year, and it's 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 nice to have a bit of a reunion to see all these these lovely faces. So thank you for that. Um, as I mentioned, every year, you know, I see you for Vietnam Advocacy Day, and every year seems to be the same story, more or less. There are some small improvements, of, as, of, of, as others have noted, but still some major, major problems, and, and that's why we're all here today. Um, as Nina mentioned, uh, USURF did make a, a trip to Vietnam. It was, it was a year ago, August, um, and it was a little different from some of the Commission's previous trips. Um, we, we had relative freedom of movement. Uh, we weren't overtly followed um, and our trip wasn't interfered with in some of the traditional ways that that the Commission's trips have have, uh, experienced in the past and we saw that as a good sign Uh, there were there were a lot of highs and lows during the trip Uh, one of our highs we we had the distinct honor of meeting with Taekwondo that was a really personal moving experience for for many of us but there were some low points as well Uh, one of the very last meetings that we had was with uh, Bong Min Uh, And and one of the members of the group was arrested um, as he made his way home. Uh, Arrested, beaten, tortured, um, and held in secret for days before he was finally released. Uh, Fortunately, we had um, excellent work done by the U.S. Embassy and the U.S. Consulate to work to get him freed uh, as soon as possible. Uh, But it's just indicative of of the struggles that still remain and, and why we're all here today. Um, as others have noted, one of the biggest hurdles that we're all facing right now is this new law on religion. Um, there are some some modest steps at improving religious policy in the country, but there's there's a lot that remains to be desired. Um, and it's a lot of it is an overall attitude of the need to have such tight control over religion. There's really no reason for that. There's no excuse for that. But that's what this law in its current form represents. Um, it's, it's an attitude of, of needing approvals for everything that you do rather than providing simple notifications. If we were to improve the law, that's certainly what we would ask for. Um, just, just create a conversation between religious communities and local officials. Say, hey, I just want to notify you. We're going to have an activity soon, FYI. But instead, it's a series of approval after approval after approval, and that really creates a tension where there really doesn't need to be one. Um, There needs to be better mechanisms in the law for the government to be responsive to requests from religious communities. It can be simple, it can be complicated, but the government needs to respond, and they need to do so in a timely manner. We certainly know that 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 doesn't exist currently. This law could be a mechanism to improve that, but in its current form, we're just not seeing it. Another thing we'd want to see in the law, just leave unregistered groups alone. Let them do their thing. Let them them practice and worship in private. They're not harming you. They're, They're going to leave you alone if you leave them alone. There also needs to be a way to provide legal recognition to those who just really don't want to be associated with the government. It's okay. It doesn't mean that they're working against you. They just want to do their own thing. They want to remain unregistered and unrecognized. So just let them do so. That, that would be our our advice to the government of Vietnam as they move forward on the law and religion. Um, as was noted earlier, the uh, the visit by President Obama to Vietnam earlier this year in May it was a little disappointing if I if I can speak from my from my personal point of view rather than my, my official USERF capacity. Um, to give away such an important leverage point by lifting the arms ban as they did, um, we didn't really get much in return. Yes, Father Lee was released, and we're all really grateful for that. Um, but it seems a little imbalanced, in, in my personal opinion. Um, so that, that was a, a really disappointing visit. Yes, the president met with religious leaders, but some some who went to go meet him were blocked from meeting him. Or were harassed when they tried to go meet him, and there weren't any real consequences for that. Um, to me, that's that's a huge problem. This is this is the president of the United States, and he was there to hold a, a legitimate meeting with with religious leaders, and and that that was interfered with so heavily, um, and there were no consequences. It just it's it, to me it doesn't sit right. Um, it was very heartbreaking, and and I, I wish that had gone otherwise. Um, the, the very last thing that I'll touch on is is the, the designation of country of particular concern. Um, I don't have a good explanation as to why there is no CPC. It's something that USERF has consistently every year uh, recommended. We will continue to do so unless there's some great sea change of improvement in religious freedom in Vietnam. Um, you know, there's there's. Uh, There's a lot of usefulness in the CPC designation. Yes, it's about naming the worst violators of religious freedom. But when it comes to Vietnam, a country where we've seen the CPC work to some degree in the past, I don't see this as a tool for admonishment. I see it as a way to reignite the partnership between the United Mm -hmm. States and Vietnam to improve religious freedom. This was a partnership that worked in the past. Both sides had mutual benefits to engaging in the CPC. I feel it could be repeated, because both countries still need that strategic relationship to deepen and grow. So what better time to reignite the CPC mechanism and start again? It's both sides coming to the table in in partnership deciding on ways that can benefit religious freedom, can ben- benefit the people of Vietnam, and strengthen the relationship bilaterally. For, for many people, we know at USRF that the CPC recommendation that we make every year, it's a beacon of hope. Because we know that, that you see the significance of it, as do we, and absent the actual designation from the State Department, you serve continually recommending it is is a sign of hope for you all, and that that means a lot to us. And we hope it means a lot to you. And as long as it's necessary, we're going to keep making that recommendation because we we see what it means to you and and what it means to us as well. I think just lastly, I would I would reiterate something that that Christina said. Um, uh, just last month, I was in. Uh, East Timor for a conference on religious freedom um, in, in Southeast Asia, and several of the participants who were traveling from Vietnam were blocked from traveling, and several others who, once they got home, they were harassed, arrested, et cetera, um, simply for, for attending. Um, but when, when I was in Timor, uh, I met several of the participants who had been able to make the trip, and I spoke with them, and they, they weren't afraid of what would happen to them when they returned. And yet they were still there. They still had the courage to get on that plane and make the trip knowing full well what could be waiting for them when they return. That was so moving to me that they would put themselves at such great risk. You know, what did I do? I I worried about, you know, making sure I had my plane tickets and and, you know, a snack for the plane. They had to worry about were they gonna be brutalized, arrested, worse when they returned um, it just really put things into perspective and uh, again it was it was very personally moving to be able to speak with them and know that they they put a lot on the line to be there simply to be able to speak freely about religious freedom and I had it so much easier yet I I benefited greatly from from the the honor and privilege of meeting them so I'll, I'll leave right. it there thank you again so much for being here and for allowing me to, to share a few words with you
0: Thank you, Tina. I really appreciate it. Those was a great remark. Um, well, we're, we're past uh, time, and, but I thought I'd give our guests, who I know are really busy, and um, I, I really appreciate their being here. If you want to have one last word on um, the, uh, you have anything in mind, the religion um, law or anything else.
2: We have a new government coming in the United States. There will be hundreds of new officials in the White House and the State Department, and on Capitol Hill, members and staff who don't know much about this issue. So there is a job ahead of educating them, but it is also a great opportunity, which you should seize.
0: Thank you. Thank you again.
7: This is a really, for me, really fascinating event as well. When I said extraordinary, because uh, I've been working for Vietnam for several, well, longer than I would like to tell you. But I think it's really very important that the speeches we've had this morning put into perspective the whole situation of Vietnam. And I think. What's important for us now is to listen to the victims. I think it's very strange, you know, when you talk about Vietnam and religious freedom, we've been listening to the problem of the laws and all the other things, but when the people, the victims themselves speak, They come from different religious communities and they have different experiences but their stories that they're going to tell you now are very much the same. They're stories of repression under a government which is seeking to stifle any kind of independent voices. And I think um, this is somehow, I think, where all of you, and I'm sure, share a frustration is that when you talk about Vietnam, a lot of people say, well, Vietnam now is so much better. You go to Vietnam, the churches are open, people are going to pagodas. You can see religious freedom. What are you talking about? Repression. But on the one hand, you have this facade of religious tolerance. But Underneath, you have this repression on an everyday scale against all religious communities. So we're very, very happy to have a panel of experts here today uh, – some are direct victims of religious repression themselves, others are experts who've studied the question for many years. And so we're going to hear their different stories. Uh, we'd like to begin today. The first speaker is Mr. Vo'o who is um, Secretary – Executive Secretary of the Vietnam Committee on Human Rights (laughs) it's He's going to be talking about uh, non-recognized religions and specifically the Unified Buddhist Church of Vietnam. Voh uh, Tran is somebody who's been working on Vietnam for several years. He speaks regularly at the United Nations. He's published and authored reports on uh, uh, legal questions and um, prison conditions. And he has a master's degree in public law and a postgraduate diploma at the European Law School in Paris. Harris. So i begin, first of all, with Votran oh. You want to be up or down? Mm-hmm. <laughs> thank you. Oh dear.
8: Um, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, yeah. um, very soon, uh, Vietnam will adopt a law on, on religion and belief. But uh, religious freedom will not benefit from it. Uh, for this law is only details or modify the registration system already in laws. In this system, you can practice religious only if, if you are registered. And you are registered only if the government accepts your request. In, in the end, the, the government decides if you can practice your religion or not. This does not comply with international law, but this is the this is, this is Communist Party's policy, and, and it has always has been. On the contrary, the Unified Buddhist Church of Vietnam, or UBCV, advocates that everyone is entitled to enjoy religious freedom and all other human rights without interference from the government. Buddhism Came to Vietnam over over 2,000 years ago, and the majority of the Vietnamese are Buddhists. Vietnam has two main streams of Buddhism, Theravada and Mahayana, but the Mahayana school is predominant. Mahayana focuses on saving all the society, and has shaped Vietnamese Buddhism into an engaged Buddhism. In Vietnamese history, each time oppression threatened from inside or or from outside the country, freedom and social justice, Vietnamese monks and nuns mobilized against it, then returned peacefully in the pagodas. That's why we can consider Buddhism as a matrix for the Vietnamese nation. Thanks to this engaged Buddhism, Viet people around the Red River Delta escaped assimilation to China despite 1,000 years of Chinese occupation. From the French colonial period up to the early 60s, Buddhism was not entitled to function as a church in its own rights, but was limited to a status of a male association under under colonial decree number 10. Buddhists were only able to officially establish a church in in 1964 after the abrogation of of this decree. And it it became the Unified Buddhist Church of Vietnam. In 1975, after the end of the Vietnam War, Vietnam was reunited, reunified under the Communist Party. And Hanoi's leaders tried to dismantle all religion, especially Buddhism, which they considered, and they still consider, a threat to the power. They confiscated UBC properties burned religious books, arrested monks, nuns, and lay Buddhists, or forced them to, to join the army. Prominent dignitary Tiet Tianmin, was tortured to death. Tiet Huyang quang and Tiet Quang Do was placed, was placed in solitary confinement. But this terrible repression failed, failed to destroy the UBCV. The communist regime realized that it could not eradicate religions so it plans to control it, to control them. In 1981, the Communist Party created a state-sponsored church, the Vietnam Buddhist Sangha, which became the only Buddhist association recognized by the the government. All Buddhists were were pressed to join it, and later the same plan was used to fabricate other state churches for the the, the, other religions. The main architect of that plan, communist official Do Tung Heo, explained later that the creation of the state church was not a Buddhist project, but the work of the Communist Party alone, and its aim was to transform Vietnamese Buddhism into a tool of the Communist Party. Indeed, among all the Buddhists who founded the state church, there was no official representative of the UBCV. The, The party even forged a false UBCV seal and pretended that the UBCV was part of the state Buddhist church. This organization is truly a political tool. State state church officials are members of the Communist Party and some some monks and nuns are even members of the National Assembly in contradiction with the Buddhist uh, monastic robe. Of course, UBCV leaders and followers refused to accept the, this ban of the church and kept up their activity despite repression. Ti Kwang Do continued to publicly speak out for the, uh, religious and human rights, and in 2005 he set up a network of representative boards to conduct educational, spiritual, and humanitarian programs for people in the poor country in the poor provinces. As Hanoi never succeeded in suppressing UBCV, the party has launched a new religious policy. Hanoi then tolerates wider freedom of worship, but does not tolerate religious freedom. That means state pagodas can organize ceremonies, but cannot make true religious teachings, nor preach on subjects not in line with the Communist Party's directives. The polity is smart It gives the impression that Buddhists have free to practice their religion. But without true Buddhist teachings, this practice is only empty shell. As a result, religious practices become more and more like superstition, and for people do not understand real meaning of ceremony and rites anymore. At the same time, the, the government has sent security police to infiltrate false monks in pagoda, into pagoda, at least 3,000 of them. They are policemen and watch everything from inside. Moreover, they adopt improper behaviors, trying to ruin the prestige of the monks among the population. Nowadays, religious persecution against Buddhism is less visible in Vietnam, that's right, but it's still terrible. In fact, Vietnamese authorities use what we call stealth repression. Buddhists are not put on, on trial or detained in official prisons anymore, but suffer harsh harassment on a daily basis. They are denied the right to travel, routinely summoned to, for police interrogation, subjected to intimidation, public denunciation sessions, and expulsion from the pagodas. Police have sought to assault them and vandalize vandalize the property. To punish UBCV followers, local authorities refuse to de- deliver them mandatory residence permits, expel Buddhist child from school, and or make people lose a job. In many UBCV pagodas in Vietnam, celebration of Buddhist festivals are prohibited. In this perspective, the current, situa- the current patriarch of the UBCV, Do. Who is now 88 years old is a symbol. He has been detained for more than 30 years because, during his whole life, he has, de- he has advocated peacefully religious freedom and human rights. He has been detained in various forms, and is now under house arrest in Saigon. He is deprived of his citizenship rights and, and unable to travel or communi- communicate freely. Sometimes the authority allows diplomats to visit him, and very recently, Western diplomats told us of the record that the authority had informed them that Taekwondo was forbidden to preach because it belonged to a non-recognized religion. The Buddhist youth movement is also victim of persecution. This organi- organization is affiliated to the UBCV and has a membership of over 300,000 young Buddhists in Vietnam. Since 2014, over 100 members have been placed under house arrest. Its head, Le Con Co, is subjected to continued harassment, threat, and police interrogation. In May, for example, during the visit in Vietnam of President Obama, police detained him, detained Le Cancau at home, and to prevent him from visiting Tit Quang Do in Saigon. I would like to conclude with the following observation repression against UBCV is unlikely to end. The UBCV is the strong popular movement, and Tit Quang Do says that can be no religious freedom without human rights and democracy. However, the one-state party does not tolerate dissent, and Hanoi has stated clearly that it will never legalize the UBCV if Do remains at its head. The future law on religion and, and belief has been conceived to enforce state control on religions and will be used by the Communist Party to reinforce its power. Indeed, Vietnam aim is not to implement the rule of law, but the rule by law. By adopting a series of laws, restricting the exercise of human rights, and legalizing arbitrary repression, the law on religion and belief is one of them. Moreover, this law is a trap for religions. Non-registered organizations are not allowed to practice religion, and there is no religious freedom for them. Religious groups wh- which agree to, to be registered have to accept the total control of the Communist Party over their organization, their activities, the, con- the content of the teachings, their leadership and membership. There is no religious freedom for them either. In the end, applying for registration means renouncing the right to, to religious freedom. That's why the Supreme Patriarch of the UBCV Do, has made it very clear that the UBCV will never apply for registration for as long as it remains at its head. Thank you for your attention. Thank you. Oops, still too high
7: again. Thank you, That shows the, the repression against the Buddhists by law, by repression by brutality in many different ways. The next community we're going to hear from is the Montagnard, who suffered very serious repression in Vietnam, and we're really very happy to have a speaker who I think is one. I told her, she's the best. She's uh, Sarah Combe is the specialist on on, uh, Southeast Asia. She's lived in the Cambodia. She's worked for over 20 years, and she's really somebody who's taken to heart the problems of the Montagnard peoples, and she's been one of the basic voices, the most vocal people, to bring this uh, to the fore. Sarah Combe is – she was from 1992 to 2011. She was based in Cambodia, where she served as human rights monitor for the UN – peacekeeping mission, advisor to Cambodian and international human rights organizations and consultant. And she is now a consultant and independent researcher for Amnesty International and the Campaign to Abolish Torture in Vietnam. And as I say, we're very honored that she's come a long way to be here today. So thank you, Sarah. The floor is yours.
9: Greetings. Thank you very much. Um, and thank you for your wonderful introduction. So I'm going to be talking about the um, repression of the of Montagnard uh, Christians in the central highlands of Vietnam. And um, Tony will talk about the Hmong in the Northwest uh, Highlands after me. I think that it's um, in looking at the question as to why are Montagnard Christians so severely repressed in Vietnam, it's useful to look back a little bit at the history. um, And I'll I'll do a quick review for you. Um, uh, During the uh, colonial regime, the French um, brought in some Catholic priests and um, people throughout Vietnam began to slowly uh, convert to uh, Catholicism, uh, followed um, in the early 20th century, around 1911, by missionaries from the um, CMA, which is the Christian and Missionary Alliance, um, introducing uh, Christianity. Christianity formally into Vietnam. And um, as a result of CMA's efforts, the uh, Evangelical Church of Vietnam was founded in 1927, initially with only a little more than 4,000 members. A couple of years after that, in 1929, 1930, CMA began working in the Central Highlands um, with the, the, they had some centers in Mun um, in Dakhlak, and in Pleiku. And over the years, um, the numbers of Montagnards who converted from their traditional beliefs, which were an, more along the lines of animism or uh, respect and worshiping uh, spirits in nature and um, ancestor spirits, Montagnards began to, many of them began to convert to Christianity um by 1975 throughout vietnam there were about 200,000 evangelical christians of whom one third were estimated to be uh minority people from the mountains from either the central highlands or the northern northwest highlands <clears throat> and this this growth uh, continued to sort of dramatically um, increase over time so that by um, by 1975, um, the, the, with the change in the government, um, there was a dramatic effort to close down this movement by imprisoning pastors, by closing churches, um, by um, being very restrictive about uh, the practice of, of Christianity in the highlands, as well as throughout Vietnam. Um, during the 80s and the 90s, there was sort of a, a quiet movement. Uh, house churches, people were quietly um, continuing their religion when they could by sort of secretly uh, practicing the religion in their homes uh, with just very few people. Um, this house church movement grew despite the harassment and threats by the government and um, to the point where um, it was a significant movement in the the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, By um, 2000, 2001, um, there were estimated to be more than a million evangelical Christians in Vietnam, of whom um, more than half were... Um, uh, Montagnards in the Central Highlands. So that's a very dramatic growth where, at this point, if you look at uh, from 1975 to now, the numbers of Montagnard Christians have essentially um, quadrupled, four times the amount um, in 1975. So this is a significant population. It's a significant sort of movement um, in Vietnam. And Excuse me. So I, I want to just talk now about um, sort of the waves of repression in the last uh, 20 years or so by the government against Montagnard Christians. Um, and I, um, I think part, something that also also needs to be taken to into account when discussing the history is that. Uh, During the 70s and 80s, the Montagnards had an armed resistance movement called Fulro. Many of the Fulro members uh, were Christians. Um, They were uh, fighting against the government as a guerrilla movement. That movement died out as a uh, fighting force in 1992, uh, when the last of the Fulro fighters were airlifted out of, their jungle hiding places in Cambodia. Um, so this is important to to sort of understand when looking at Montagnard Christianity, because when Full Row was uh, taken out as a, as a fighting force, when it was no longer a a, um, a force in uh, Vietnam, at that t- same time the um, popularity of uh, Christianity amongst Montagnards began to, to, to grow even more. And um, in a sense, it was a, a non violent sort of movement uh, for, for religion and for um, ethnic pride as well um, by having their own churches and um, wanting to control their own affairs. Um, So in, in around 2000, um, an activist Montagnard movement, which was, um, has been called uh, Dega um, Christianity, or in Vietnamese would be Tin Lan um emerged in the Central Highlands. Uh, and this um, movement, uh, it, it's a, it was a religious movement, but it also um, had combined the evangelical Christianity with aspirations for greater political freedom, for protection of ancestral lands, and for some, um, autonomy or self-rule. So it's a, a political and a religious movement, movement that were combined. And um, in 2001, less than a year later, there were massive demonstrations by Montagnards in four provinces of the, of the Central Highlands. Okay. Can you hear me still? Okay. Um, calling for religious freedom and greater land rights. Uh, the government's with, response was extremely harsh. Uh, t- tanks were brought in. Uh, military were dispatched to the region. Um, hundreds of people were arrested. Um, Many more fled to Cambodia as refugees. And um, the government at that time was, since that time, has alleged that a form of Montagnard Christianity, they say, is not a religion. It's not a real religion, they say. Um, they say that it is actually a, uh, a guise for a political movement, um, a separatist political movement. And it's been a long, this rationale has been used to close down hundreds of churches to imprison hundreds of Montagnards uh, throughout the last 16 years on charges that they are Tinlandega and or Fulro, even though there's no evidence um, that Fulro or any armed movement continues amongst the Montagnards in the Central Highlands. And um, even though the um, Montagnards themselves um, advocate peaceful peaceful change um, regarding their land rights and their human rights, so, so I wanted to share with you um, some some things that some Montagnard Christians told me when they fled from Vietnam to Cambodia. Um, I've, I've interviewed hundreds of Montagnards. I was based in Cambodia for almost 20 years, and um, people crossing the border told me why they fled, and they also told me uh, about their their religion, their religious beliefs. Um, one old man told me, uh, "Before we had religion, meaning Christianity, before we had religion, we were ignorant. We were in the dark. We drank wine." and did not know about our land. Then we saw the light and realized our rights were being violated. We realized our land was being confiscated, our ethnicity crushed and destroyed. That's why the Vietnamese government prohibits our religion." Another, uh, many people told me, I, I would say, what is the difference between uh, Tin Lan, uh, evangelical Christianity, and Tin Lan dega? And it was really hard to get a clear answer. Uh, some people who had been arrested and, and accused of being tinlandega uh, never called themselves that. Uh, they didn't had never even heard of it. Um, whereas uh, those who'd heard of it, they would say the difference is that uh, tinlandega and tinlan uh, there's, they're not much different. One comes from America. That's that's tinlan, uh, and then tinlandega is from us Montagnards ourselves. But basically, it's one religion with two parts. So they're basically wanting to manage their own religion, like many other religious groups in Vietnam. Um, And they say that Tin Lan is a religion that preaches harmony and for people to think about our ancestral land. So these are are, um, pretty mild. Goals. These are not goal, goals. to overthrow the government violently. Um, they are really voicing their their wishes to um, to ma- to manage their own religious activities. I would say that you know when when asked about the question of are 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 they seeking a separate state? Um, s- some are yes, for sure. Um, but others, um, they are talking about, um, I want my, my land back. You know, I, I used to have a coffee field, and it's gone. I have no way to support my family. Uh, I, want, I want my patch of land back. Um, others um, may say that they, they, they would like to have some control over their religious groups or their localities, Whereas others go so far as to say that they want a separate state, but um, all of this is advocated peacefully, and I I think that one of the issues, one of the problems that U.S. government policy has fallen into, is in distinguishing between um, the good, sort of the good Montagnards who want to, who agree to um, go to churches under the recognized. Evangelical Church of Vietnam South, and those who who don't agree, um, and in many cases, um, U.S. government policy has fallen into uh, the trap of basically um, agreeing with uh, Vietnamese government policy by stating that the Montagnards who they are they are separatists, the Tinlandega the they are separatists we are not going to put them on our lists. We'll take the ones who are ECVN-recognized pastors, a much smaller number. Um, Both groups should be on the US government's list of prisoners of conscience. And the US government should not be um, staying clear of people who have simply advocated nonviolently for their political and religious ideas. So I, I mentioned um, there were demonstration, large demonstrations in 2001, uh, which resulted in many hundreds of people arrested and fleeing to Cambodia. There were demonstrations again in 2002, in 2004, in 2008, and may, maybe for sure, other demonstrations that no one has ever heard of because the Central Highlands is a very closed area. It is very difficult for independent press or human rights researchers to gain access to the Central Highlands. Um, And when uh, events happen in the Central Highlands, it's um, rarely uh, covered in the international media. It's, It's very, very difficult. So, for example, how many people here know that on August 30th, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, two Jirai Christians were sentenced to prison 11 years and eight years? So it's a couple of weeks ago. Uh, there's no, no outcry. There's no press. There's no names. Um, there's very little attention paid to this. Um, they, they were accused of being Tinmandega and being Fulro. Why does the government always accuse people of being Tinlandega and Fulro? Because it's written into the law. The laws that were passed as reform measures uh, resulting from the dialogue between the U.S. government and Vietnam, the laws in 2005, specifically uh, outlawed um, legalization of churches who are Tinlandega or who have connections to Fulro. So when you look at the Vietnamese newspaper articles from the state press, that is the accusation for everyone. They're Tin and they're Foro. So now uh, there's a, a Catholic group that is becoming very popular in the central highlands called Ha after the place where it was founded. Uh, hundreds of people have joined um, the Ha Catholics, uh, th- that group has also had an activist background because they have opposed the displacement of uh, villagers in Kantom for a dam for a hydropower project. Um, so the government is arresting uh, many, many of these people and um, having trials of them in the villages to, to sort of scare the villagers from joining Hamon. And is saying that they, too, are connected to Folro and to so they put it all in the same box. Um, I think I'll I'll stop here with just one more point. I just, in terms of the Catholics who are now under pressure in the Central Highlands, the Hmong Catholics. Um, if you want to know about this, you just read the Vietnamese official media. It's all there. Um, Uh, Recently, there was a two-year campaign to eradicate Hamon Catholicism in Yalai province in four districts. And so I'm just going to tell you what the official uh, press in Vietnam, um, I think it was probably the police newspaper, they said, over two years, in order to eliminate, to destroy Hamon Catholicism, we held more than 120 meetings, uh, to mobilize 12,000 people. We brought 144 subjects before public review. Pu- you got In your village, you are called before the entire village and you are criticized. You are forced to uh, confess to wrongdoing. You are made to swear uh, your allegiance to the party and to uh, renounce your religion. Um, this led to Seventy-four people who had been in hiding were uh, discovered by the authorities. Five hundred and thirty-four people voluntarily abandoned Hamon Catholicism. Uh, In addition, the police, uh, in cooperation with uh, um, centrally-directed Central Highlands Mobile Police Regiment, mobilized 2,500 soldiers and officers to conduct 85 raids. This led to the apprehension of 38 core personnel and uh, destroyed the 25 underground full row networks who were using Hamon Catholicism and uh, re-educated 148 core subjects. I mean, these kind of statistics are often in. Um, Vietnamese um, police newspaper accounts too, because they they want they want to uh, um, sort of describe how they are feeling um, completing government campaigns to eradicate these types of religions so it's it's all there right in, in the press um, finishing off with just some recommendations um, of course the recommendations that USERF makes and that. Um, Vietnam Committee for Human Rights makes, Montagnard Human Rights Organization, and Camarcom. All those, organiz- those, uh, recommendations are very good regarding, uh, eliminating, uh, rigorous registration requirements and, um, putting pressure on Vietnam. I would also just underscore the importance of not focusing solely on, uh, religious freedom. Uh, to the detriment of people who are religious freedom activists or who are human rights defenders who are um, trying to get assistance to the families of Montagnard prisoners or, um, you know, people who are even calling for uh, greater land rights when they meet to pray. It's important not to separate those people out because they, they're the ones who are really the, the unseen uh, victims. They're the people who are Um, languishing in in Vietnamese prisons. Um, According to the the numbers that I have, there are at least, you know, um, 200, 175, 200 Montagnards who who remain in prison. And that's that's a large number and is rarely ever mentioned um, by um, U.S. government when they meet with uh, Vietnam these specific people so thank you very much Thanks.
7: love to have lots of comments about this because <laughs> I'm an activist too but I'm watching the clock and I know that we have three more speakers uh, to, to speak today so I will say as little as possible but I do think when Saren gives you the figures from the Vietnamese press you realise that there's one whole thing that you're realising you can read in the international press but when you read the figures in the Hanoi press and those aren't always the full story that's just half the story but you see there's two completely different faces of religious repression in Vietnam. So the next speaker we're very – also very honored to have here today is going to talk about the situation of the Hmong people in Vietnam, uh, Mr. Tong Vang. And he is—he um, is a specialist. He has two hats, actually. He has a security hat and a human rights hat. Uh, he is um, director of the Southeast Asia Monitor for Justice and Human Rights. He's a consultant with portfolios in human rights and security services. And he was a former lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army, and he had management responsibilities over humanitarian assistance, education, maritime security, and peacekeeping operations. So with more. No more ado, I hand the floor to Mr. Tong Vang.
10: Thank you, thank you Penelope. Uh, let me take this opportunity to uh, thank the Vietnam Commission and the Hudson Institute for the opportunity. It really is a privilege, and uh, I'm glad to be here to speak on the Hmong in Vietnam. but let me let me begin with a little background. I am of Hmong descent, born in Laos, raised in America, and naturalized here. I grew up uh, in a Christian home. So for the longest time, I thought all Hmong were Christians. And it would be later that I would learn and realize that actually the Christians are actually a minority of the Hmong community in the US and worldwide. Hmong generally follow or adhere to a form of animism in which a shaman plays a large role. You may call that a, a folk religion, as some do, but uh, in short, the Hmong are a deeply religious people like you and many others. So Hmong reside in North America, in Europe, in French Guiana, a little bit off the beaten path, but the most significant numbers are found in China, Vietnam, and Laos in that order. It's interesting that even though Vietnam ranks second, we really don't hear much discussion about Hmong there. But I can tell you that inside the community, there is no doubt that the Hmong population there suffer the most in the entire world. Now the lack of religious freedom is a large part of that suffering. Why? Because unlike in America, more the number of Christians actually far outnumber the non-Christians, almost 70 to 30. Whereas in America, you have less than 20% more Christians. But let's, let's be fair. In Vietnam, they're not forced to follow any particular religion. They can actually choose but as, one, as, but as one person told me, yes, there is more freedom, but not for the Hmong. There is an unequivocal difference between the Vietnamese majority and the Hmong minority when it comes to religious freedom. We are all aware of the requirement to register. And it's not simply going somewhere and saying, hey, this is us, this is what we do, thanks. You have to be affiliated with an organization supported by the, the government you of course have to submit your yearly or annual report on your Christian activities and these are these are nothing new what strikes me is the fact that you can't have a standalone building of worship that someone has to actually occupy that building it has to be a residence there is the prohibition unstated, of having contact with foreigners. And if you are visited by foreigners, you're also going to be visited by officials. It's more of an investigation, and that investigation extends to to money and funds. You see from these restrictions that there isn't support for what we would consider as normal everyday life activities. I call that basic rights basic human rights. It's a system of control, one that isolates and harasses with administration and physical intimidation. So, I'd like us to think or consider the larger context in which religious freedom fits. The people there, the Hmong people there, in Vietnam are experiencing this kind of restricted religious freedom, along with lack of running water, along with sufficient food to eat. So in a phrase, there is no nourishment for the soul or the body. I will just shift quickly now to the security implications. For me, when a nation or a government or a people oppress another, one should, of course, always be aware of all the potential consequences. But I don't worry so much about the bullet. In my experience working overseas, you have people who live in the mountains or neglected by the local government who don't know or don't have the resources to practice Good hygiene that fall from the cities. It's really a perfect place for disease to develop. I was overseas in a country which was ground zero for Ebola. It didn't it didn't break out in the cities. And if it did, you're much closer to the resource that can contain that. So I offer that as one implication security-wise, that we may or may not be thinking about. And let me leave you with this, this question, how will we continue to pivot toward Asia? It's been a while since we heard about that strategic move, if you will. And I would just like to remind you that international religious freedom is a tenet of our U.S. foreign policy. So thank you for listening.
7: Thank you very much. I said they're all different stories but they all tell you the same story but one of oppression again and again it's incredible we have two speakers now who are going to talk about the Khmer Khrum Buddhist situation and I think if I'm not wrong it's a very large population it's more than a million is that correct so it's very important but it's something that you very very rarely hear about in international conferences so we're very pleased. I'm very honored to have two speakers today. And I was looking at their, 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 their notes on, the, on their, their life stories, an incredibly short, and I was looking at the Venerable Kim wol He's a Mahayana Buddhist monk, and it just simply says he's a Buddhist monk and a former political prisoner. He participated in a peaceful protest to demand religious freedom in February 2007, and he was arrested, defrocked, and sentenced to two years prison in Vietnam. It sounds very short, but that two years prison in Vietnam says a lot and I, well, we have a phrase in Vietnamese which says, one day in prison is longer than a thousand years outside. We say, uh, I've got it all wrong. <laughs> and that's really, that's what it is. Prison is a terrible thing. So we're very happy now to introduce, I don't know if you're speaking separately or speaking together, but we have Venerable Kim Moon and also Mr. Pratt Serevuth, who's Vice President of the Khmer, Khr- Khmer Kambachir Chrome Federation, and he He's been advocating fundamental rights uh, and religious freedom for the khmer Krum people for several deltas, uh, decades now, so
11: please. Uh, he doesn't speak English, so oh. I speak Khmer, so I need to translate for him.
7: Yes, certainly, please do. And then I will speak my own. So. Okay, please. Would you like to sit down? Or you
11: do not want
12: Brandpo, Good afternoon.
11: To my fellow Vietnamese friends, I would like to take this opportunity to uh, thank the Hudson Institute for organizing this event. I don't have much story to tell but just my personal story when I was defrocked and was imprisoned in Vietnam
12: in 2007. <laughs> Uh, cụ bàn cha Pathama bà ta
11: Uh, On the 8th of February, 2007, I was arrested by the Vietnamese government authority, accusing me of uh, organizing a rally, the Khmer around ethnic indigenous people in the Mekong Delta, to uprising against their government, which it was not
12: true. ក៏បាន잡គូនសាសអាត្មា 4
11: Later on, for my uh, friend who uh, Khmer Buddhism has been arrested and imprisoned, just like myself, they accused us the crime of teaching the Khmer language at the Buddhist temple. We practice uh, Theravada Buddhism. We had to teach Khmer to our people to to learn the Buddhism. And uh, in addition to that, some those people have a lot of relative and friends who escaped from Vietnam to the United States and Europe. So their contact just like friendly relationship. They actually as apply organized rebellion against the Hanoi government. That
12: was a crime and they've been in jails. <laughs> Uh, several of them were released from prison the uh, communist government authority still intimidated
11: them, follow them every step make them so difficult to live. They intimidate their family from my concern. They don't want us to live longer in the Mekong Delta. So just like indirectly, pressure us to escape outside of Vietnam. I pressure us
12: indirectly. can <laughs> tell. Bàp nhung bản nâng, bội bà Việt nâng, thương chứng mình, mình tha chồng, chồng lịch, chồng Việt thì, bội mẹn bà đi I would like to uh,
11: clarify that as a Khmer Kram indigenous people, I have no hatred or animosity against any Vietnamese population. But I'm against the policy of the government of Vietnam, which oppressed everybody. Including the Khmer for practice, uh, freedom of expression, freedom of religion. Everybody was a victim of that oppression,
12: and include the Khmer ground. Việt, đều làm tấu có nhìn 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 nó đứng nó hay tao sọc quyến tao sọc quyến tao khi đam đam theo dõi thì hốt tao na ơi tao xuân bè tao tốt tức là tao đam cũng lấy anh chứng tao dưng bảo bạc rồi tí bi kì chạch tục thai dưng nó để mô tí cảo nó dưng oh mê em ơi ừ chì mũi ra thai bị ba tiết rồi kì kì mình tốt chất dưng thì thai dương mô tí cảo nó chọn tí em tí tì, anh chai chọn tí em cho tì, anh Nên, hay dương ăn thì dương nô tí cảo tàm bích tao dương nô tí cảo ຍັງຍັງຂ່າວ <cười>
11: For you, as a Vietnamese citizen, you have been complaining about the oppression. How about us who are the indigenous and ethnic minority there? The oppression will become like double or triple minority within Vietnam. And as you know that, for the outside world, they don't know what's going on. But inside Vietnam, the uh, Vietnamese uh, secret service or intelligence officer follow us every day, intimidate us. So every move, we will be monitored. So for the Khmer Krom ethnic who escape to the United States and third world country, when they go back to visit their family, they are, they are not free. You know, their their authority or their agents intimidate us every move. So it, it's, it's not safe at all for us, especially Khmer Krom.
12: Đích đi cụm tay tương lưu ninh, bây giờ lưu ninh, bây giờ lưu ninh, bây giờ lưu ninh bây one of the กก monks named Venerable uh, uh,
11: is they are famous because they preach very good. Buddhism. The people in the village love them. In addition, to, in addition to that, they taught Khmer language in the Buddhist temple. so a lot of young children come to learn uh, Khmer language, which is different from Vietnamese language. So the uh, government authority came to arrest him at night. Locked him up in jail for more than
12: a year, and no family know where he will disappear. Until later on, like more than a year, This is how they treat the people there. <coughs> Vì dù cái nhỏ nó quay thuê tùm lý, quay trang cho món quay vót Quay vót chạp luk Chạp luk nó làm nó quỵ áo khó, bỏ lần làm Bỏ lần làm nó quý Quý nó không làm làm tôi <cười> chụm lợi hơi Sao về đat Tôi chịu đat Nâu Nó không Mình ôi tôi nàng, chăm đặc biệt cả tốt Dù tôi đấy, đời lúc
11: one of our Khmer Rouge Buddhist men named Lee Chanda. He was surrounded by the uh, probably the police and the military authority, surrounding his uh, temple, and they crashed the door, arrest at night, lock up. They beat him, they him, and torture him yeah, for no reason. The only reason he teach, they taught Khmer language. Yeah, it's a lot of violation that nobody knows.
12: At my did at my I would like to clarify again as a Buddhist man, I have no racial discrimination or hatred against
11: any ordinary. Citizen, I am not happy with uh, against the uh, government companies of Vietnam, which practice their ethnic cleansing policy to wipe out my people, my race, and make us to become Vietnamese by by force by pressure, that which I resisted. <laughs>
12: Nowadays, in the Mekong Delta, any four
11: or five Buddhist monks who just sat and talked like this for ordinary thing the Secret Service, Government Secret Service, will come to investigate intimidate. So it's very difficult.
12: Thế mà giờ ra thời <cười> báo Việt Nam điều quay chạc nắm dưới dân dân khuôn, quay dân tạch dân thẹt dân cục sọc em dân Rồi thời báo Việt <cười> Nam cứ, mình thế mà báo Việt Nam một lựa 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 Thương một nhu một chất tại sao một Việt Nam, thuong mot thuong mot lua chan cung chat tai sao mot viet Nam
11: Please do not disappointed when I repeatedly mention about the word Vietnam. That's not my, my hatred against Vietnam. But from my personal experience, who have been arrested in prison, beaten, tortured, during that, that time, I have the right to tell you that how bad the communists treat every people, including our ethnic indigenous people
12: tới sa ché, tới sa ra bà Việt Nam nó chặt tuột thời dương một tì cảo nứng, càng mến kiềm thời dương tha, dịch kiều, dịch dịch kiều phản động, hả, ơi, Đà Lão dịch kiều yêu nước, tới sa ấy, tới sa dương nên lôi chở, tỉ cao nung cám tha kieu dich kieu phan đong ha oi đa lấu kieu yeu nuoc toi sa ay cho tiet ra thời bà Việt Nam chặt tuột dương, mình phải tuột chặt một tì cảo, ôi thời chinh phạt thấy buồn máu for us who escaped to the free world country to go back to see our family and our hometown was such a
11: choice but we didn't know that Every step that we landed in Vietnam, we were being followed. They investigate our family member there, so there's no choice at all. We went there, just like, bring
12: more more trouble to our family, including ourselves. <coughs> เอ่อตอตะปาปอยบังกําออยធ្វើបាបធ្វើទុកមកចង់ឃើញមានការកាត់ I would like to uh, honestly convey my message to all of you who might have some
11: family member working in the uh, government authority there to let them know that please don't oppress us. We just want to live in peace, just like everybody, uh, without without uh, or being arrested or do anything. We part of Vietnam too. We one of the uh, one of the 54 ethnic there, so we want to live in peace, free freedom to to practice our religion. That's a
12: I appreciate for your attention to listen
11: to my speech. <laughs> Again, my name is Serebh Prat. I'm the Vice President of the Khmer Kampoji Federation, a non-profit organization which represents my people all over the world. We advocate human rights awareness among the international public, the freedom of speech, and freedom of uh, a human right and religious freedom. As you all aware, I see all your age, you probably uh, were in Vietnam during the U.S. involvement in the 60s and uh, the early 70s before American troop withdrawal. In Vietnam, they divided geographically. Call area and two four zone military corps: first corps, second Corp, third corps, and fourth corps, from uh, Kaisang County way all the way to the Mekong Delta in Kamal Province. My people live in the military fourth corps, the Mekong Delta, the very fertile land, the vital lifeline of the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese troop unit war based heavily upon two strategic locations. The Mekong Delta is in the 4th Corps, and also the military 3rd Corps, Central Highland, the encompassed area between Banh Bithut, the sanctuary border of Cambodia, where the Vietnamese troop, American troops called VC and VA stay inside Cambodia. And also the southern Laos, they call it the triangle border. The triangle border and the third crop, is the Ho Chi Minh supply line. So they depend on two this this both areas, food and military equipment or supply line. The food they don't need to import food from Hanoi. So they rely on the rice crop in the Mekong Delta, very best. And so they feed themselves over there. My people live over there. We under two military, just like the mafia in New York. During daytime, they under the U.S. by South Vietnamese government authority, including the American troops to oversee. But at night, when the dark, the Vietcong and the NVA came back, so we are very difficult to live between the borderline. This is the fourth call. So for us to survive, we have to choose. Majority of the true side, we choose on the good guy, American troops. So we volunteer to work for the US 9th infantry, infantry Division, which operate in the Mekong Delta. Also work under the South Vietnamese government. But all the Thamayang, they joined the U.S. Special Forces on the third corps, sent on the operation along Ho Chi Minh Trail. They call cross-border operation back to the Mekong Delta. Several million of my people, which consist the largest majority of ethnic people in Vietnam, besides the Vietnamese people, we practice Theravada Buddhism, which is different from the Vietnamese population, which is Mahayana Buddhism called Buddhism just like Catholic and Protestant. Second thing, our commune, community, our, our village cluster. We have five hundred Buddhist temple all over the Mekong Delta. Each temple was surrounded by eight or ten small villages, a comic population. The two need each other. The Buddhist temple, which the, the Buddhist monks stay there, they provide counsel or advice to the population, just like marriage, the funeral. When you have dispute among the people, the to solve the We don't need to judge. It's all our problem. Also teach Khmer language to the, to the young children so they can learn Khmer language, so they become a, a, a Buddhist monk, which is so proud to be a Buddhist monk there, to practice. They have to learn Khmer script. Also to maintain our culture, our identity, the Kh culture tradition, everything surrounding the temple, the the center of tradition culture, and everything language surrounding the temple about five six seven eight eight nine language oh villages are uh, the farmers come farmers because we live in the delta, full Thailand, we are the Right producer. During the Saigon government, supported by the US, yeah, by Washington, our living standard was good. We have enough food to eat. We have freedom. But after the fall of Saigon, everything just like 360 degree reversal. We become starving, no food to eat. Vietnam. When you look to the north, they don't have enough land to produce rice. But when they control the south, right now, they become the world's number one rice exporter, surpass Thailand. I have no problem with Vietnam being a, a, a number one rice exporter. But it's not fair to my people who live in that land, have no food to eat. Put yourself in my people's shoes, how you feel. This is not racial discrimination. That's about survival. A nation to have no food. Okay. The land grabbing policy which apply to everybody. Because land becomes so precious a few the later, they took the land from our people. Without land, farmers have no life. This is the so called man made disaster. Human rights violation. They torture our people. Buddhist monks, we should respect them. They beat the monk, they frog, throw them in jail just like pigs. How do you feel as us? you know. And we are not maybe ethnic minority there, indigenous. Nobody knows. Another thing, they have the indirect ethnic cleansing policy of forcing us by making us starving, lose our land and grab our land. We have to migrate to the urban area, like Ho Chi Minh City or Saigon or any place to find a. Uh, uh, labor job to do below minimum wage, that's not enough. So we lose our land, lose our culture, lose our language. The temple, including Buddhism, we would rely heavily on the support from the rice farmers. Without the farmer, the temple becomes deteriorate. That affects the religion. This is not about hatred against Vietnamese, but the policy from the communist government of Vietnam makes us so hard to live. I mentioned to you about the man-made disaster. How about the natural disaster? Only God can stop it. The climate change, we have concern about the Paris talk about global warming. The climate change affects everybody from Southern California to Southern Vietnam. Right now, there's severe drought, lack like of rainfall. Farmers need rains without rain. Right like now, the land will very dry, we become starving. We move to the urban area, we lose that. In addition to that, the rising of seawater, the melted of ice in North Pole or South Pole because of warm climate, make the seawater rise. and flood the lower land, that means the Mekong Delta, we live there. So we have to move up. In the next 10, 20 years, we don't know how much the, the, the salted water will, will destroy the farmland. This is very critical. And so what can we do? We depend heavily on the superpower within the United States. My people shed our blood, sacrifice a lot of blood and tears to work side by side, voluntarily, wholeheartedly for the US troops, especially the Green Beret, the US Special Forces on many special operations uh, civilian irregular Different group CIDG. It's okay for President Barack Obama and all the previous administration, including President Bill Clinton, to normalize the relationship with Vietnam. America is the best. We fought in World War II, against Japan and Germany. After the war, we forgive and forget, rebuild our country, become one of the best. As a Khmer people, I have no problem for the United States to repeat the same thing to Vietnam, just like they did to Germany and Japan and World War II. But don't forget, you can forgive and forget Vietnam. I don't mean the ordinary people, but the communist government of Vietnam, I open But the Vietnamese government of Vietnam, now forgive and forget the little people like our people, the montagna in Central Highland, the Mount Hill tribes in Laos. Who worked side by side for the American troops, expecting Americans were now cut and drawn, abandon us. You know, if we were slaughtered after the fall of Saigon, nobody knows. After that, we escaped, there was a lot of obstacle. So, through all of you, through the American authority, I speak from my heart. I would like the Hudson Institute. The State Department, the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, Tina, I met her in Dili Timor, in early August. I speak the same thing. I spoke the same thing. It's good for the United States to balance the Asia-private in South Asia, the South Chinese, whatever, you know, the sea-line communication. That's not my problem. That's not my people's problem. My people have nothing to do against the United States government or oh, the communist government of Vietnam. We just care to have our food and our masks, also to have freedom to speak, to practice publicism. Very simple, very little. Why the United, United States government oversee, overlook that, that, that appeal? You forget, you waive Vietnam from the economic sanction or the country of particular concern, the blacklist that disappoint everybody, including ourselves. You know, we believe in the United States. If United States want to remain the only superpower, fair and firm, just like you as Supreme Court, you have to be truthful to your language. You speak in one thing, you practice different things. You want us to believe in you, but you wave the human rights violation in Vietnam. You go there and shake hands with Vietnam, concerned about your interest against China, that's your problem. But for us, we were tortured every day. Catholic, Vaha, Kaodai, Buddhist. You know, this is just simple thing. Please ask the Vietnamese government to forgive and forget us too, just like you do to Vietnam. Forgive, forget. Leave East from extension, stay sophisticated, to that going to Vietnam. We just need to live in peace in our motherland. So have rice to eat. I appreciate the Hudson Institute. Center for, for Religious Freedom for giving me the opportunity to come here. I know in a short time. And I appreciate all of you for listening to my speech. Thank you.
7: I would just like, this is the end, this closes the second panel, but I just wanted to say thank you so much to all our speakers. I think your message you've given today is really so important. Because, as you said, it's not the problem of the Vietnamese people. The Vietnamese government, the communist government, is trying to put divisions between religions, to put Buddhism against the Catholics, the Catholics against the Protestants, and to divide to to rule and we won't let them do that. We're here to speak as one voice because religious freedom means the respect for every individual and for every belief. We have our own beliefs, but we respect the beliefs of others. That's the basis of democracy, and it's the basis of religious freedom. So I just wanted to say, Nina, Shay, you're here. The Huston Institute has done a wonderful thing today to open your doors and to hear all these messages, and I just want to say that it's so important because Pennsylvania Avenue. We're three blocks away from the White House. We're very near to Congress. The President, he's here, they're going to hear your voices, the things you've said today are going to be heard in Congress, they're going to be heard in the White House, thanks to Hudson, but also thanks to the courage of all of you to keep uh, the fight going. So this closes this panel for, for the moment. We're going to have a short break, if – well, probably not a break, but if anybody needs to go to have a drink or something, a little rest. But then we're going to continue for a, a discussion where you can all take part, and we'd like to hear the views of all of you and the questions. So. Thank, thank you very, very much, uh, Nina.
0: <laughs> yeah, I just want to say thank you to the second panel. You were all wonderful. And thank you all for coming. Again, it was my great honor, honor to partner with Vo Van I and Penelope and the uh, uh, Vietnam Committee for Human Rights and Religious Freedom. Thank you all for coming. We will – this uh, whole program up until now um, is – going to be linked on our website if you want to share it. Um, or spread, it, spread the word, um, you can link to it. So I'll send it out to uh, Penelope you. and oh, okay. you can spread it around your networks. Wonderful. Okay, you. great, thank you all. It's a great privilege thank for you. me. Okay. Thank you all.
7: Uh, could, I, could I just have one last word to say thanks to our interpreter who's been working nonstop for um, how many, almost three hours. So thank you very much. So thanks to your interpreting, everybody's been able to follow today's discussion. Thank you very much.